Good morning and welcome to Wednesdays in the Word. I'm glad you could be with me today as we continue examining together God's wonderful Word. We're in the midst of a study of the book of Romans. Uh, we finished the four, first four chapters of the book of Romans and last time began looking at the fifth chapter. I'm going to pick up our reading today in Romans chapter 5 starting in verse 1 and read on through to verse 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Chapter 5 opens up by talking to us more about the wonder of our justification. Justification, as we saw, was the promise that we are credited with the righteous life of the Lord Jesus Christ when we repent and believe in that gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And so the fifth chapter begins by underscoring for us three amazing, wonderful outcomes of having been declared justified before God. The first of those outcomes is that God says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. In this world, most people wrongly assume they're already at peace with God, that God already accepts them just the way that they are. But the Bible tells us a very different picture. The Bible says we are sinners and separated from God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are none good. No, not one. And that the wages of sin is death. The fact of the matter is sin alienates us from God. We are not reconciled with God. We are not at peace with God. In fact, the Bible even describes that we are enemies of God until we find reconciliation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we turn to the gospel... We can have peace with God at long last, reconciled with him once again. The peace of Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is not a peace in a sense emotionally, although certainly God gives us peace in that regard at times, but it's a peace positionally. We are at long last right with God and at peace with him, not hostile and alienated from him and accountable for our sin. Isn't that a great promise? peace with God at last, how we can find peace for our souls. The second of the aspects of this opening part of the fifth chapter tells us that justification also gives us bold access to the Father. Most people, again, wrongly assume anybody can come into God's presence, and they even wrongly assume that eventually upon their death, they'll come into God's presence and everything will be okay. But the Bible makes a clear picture to us that our God, who is really there, is holy, loving, just, and righteous. And sin cannot dwell in his presence. And all of us are sinners. <laughs> and therefore, we can't enter into his presence unless something is done to address the sin in our lives. And that something was the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. 
as we study in Matthew, upon the death of Christ on the cross, God initiated a movement that tore the veil that separated his presence in the Holy of Holies from the people, tore it from the top to the bottom, and access to God is finally now available through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, but through him. You and I now have freedom of access to boldly, as Hebrews challenges us, boldly come into his presence. Uh, not presumptuously, but boldly, resting in the one who's opened the way for us. Finally, uh, he said the third thing that justification has given us is right standing before God. The question before all of humanity is, how will you stand before God? Everyone will stand before God. Everyone, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Then the question is, how will you stand? On what basis will you seek to be standing before the scrutiny of God as he determines your eternal destiny. The wrong choice is to try to stand upon the sum total of your good efforts, your good intentions, your religious actions, your religious rituals and sacraments. The right answer is to say, I'm lost if that's how I stand before him. Instead, I'm going to stand before him based on the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, promised to me, credited to me, as I repent and believe in the gospel. Only then can grace save me. My works or grace, which will it be? Justification ensures grace is the foundation. Now today, as we continue forward in these verses, in verse 3 we encounter an issue of suffering. Many people logically would assume as wonderful as justification is, maybe one of the outcomes of justification isn't merely peace with God, access to God, grace standing before God. Maybe one of the outcomes is that God will build a hedge around my life so I won't have to suffer anymore in this world. <laughs> and the Bible is quickly turning attention to that and saying, well, no, that's a wrong conclusion. It might appear logical to you, but it's not biblical. No, God, though redeeming us, though justifying us in the Lord Jesus Christ, though giving us peace with him, does not promise peace in this life, meaning we can encounter suffering and struggles. While redeemed, we still live in the midst of a fallen world, a world that is filled with social and political and relational issues, problems. Job chapter 5 verses 6 and 7 tells us this, for his affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Think of watching a campfire and the sparks going up in the air. They don't go down, they go up. And God says, listen, that's the reality. We live in a fallen world born to trouble. Stress and struggle is there. And even as redeemed people, having turned to Christ as Savior, we still are in the midst of a battlefield. We battle that very world. We also battle what the Bible describes as our flesh, which he will talk much more about in the upcoming chapters of Romans. We also battle our very personal enemy in the devil. It's a battlefield. And one of the consequences of being in a battlefield is that we face stress. We face struggle, or as it puts it here, 
we face suffering. God does not promise that there will not be suffering in the lives of believers. Suffering will continue even as redeemed, justified people. But God does promise that we can approach such suffering and go through such suffering in a very different way than was true of us before we were justified people. Let's look further at this important message to those who are redeemed in Christ. Suffering is inevitable. The word suffering here translates the Greek word flipsis, which refers literally to a pressing together, a pressure. Uh, the word picture of that of flipsis, by the way, according to the Greek scholars, is that of a press. Consider a press like with a, a group of olives. You put the olives in, you press them down, olive oil comes out. Or a wine press where grapes are put in, the press comes down and the grape juice emerges. Or apples, uh, apple press where cider juice emerges from the press. Suffering refers to the fact that life brings with it situations that press in on us, that pressure us, that make us feel very uncomfortable. That is what the Bible means by suffering. Have you had any of those pressing down experiences in your life? I'm certain you have. All of us have. And we will continue to have them in this world. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We will have it. We will continue to face these suffering times. But God says, listen, I want you to understand now, as justified people, these suffering times do not have to press the joy out of your life. And these suffering times do not have to press the fruitfulness out of your life. Things can be different. In fact, he says, we can rejoice in our suffering. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. What in the world does God mean that we can rejoice in our suffering? The word rejoice translates a Greek idea, which literally means to lift up the head, to straighten the neck. It's a contrast word to describe an individual who, who hangs their head, meaning life circumstances often seek to conspire to make us just hang our head, to feel defeat, to feel all is lost, to feel ashamed of ourselves or something of that sort. The word rejoice here is not referring to somebody celebrating. It is not referring to somebody even singing, per se. It's talking about an individual who, in the face of the press, stands erect, holds their neck straight, their head up high. God says, you and I can hold our head up high, even in the suffering times. Well, how can that be? How can that be? How can we have that ability in the face of the press to not respond to the press the way the natural man responds to it. And the answer to that is that God promises to be at work within the circumstance, at work in us in the midst of the circumstance, and at work in the circumstance to bring about a very different outcome, to keep us personally from hanging our head, and secondly, to take what is a negative situation, a stressor, a press, and use it 
for good outcomes. Well, let's look further at this and see what else God has to say to us about the wonder of all of this. God promises us that he will work in the midst of the sufferings he permits in our life. He has not promised to prevent the suffering. He has promised to work through the sufferings in our lives. He will use it, and he will produce outcomes. The justified, therefore, as they encounter a difficult time, can always assume all is not lost. They can always assume, as hard as this pressing down time appears to be, God is going to use it and accomplish something through it. I am never battered without benefit. Those who don't know Christ, who are not justified, have good reason to believe they're battered without benefit, that suffering is all just kind of a cosmic joke on their life, a futility of sorts. But the believer can say, no, no, God, God is choosing to use this inescapable suffering to accomplish some amazing outcomes. It's more than wishful thinking. It's divine promise in the scriptures to his children, his redeemed children. The suffering is not pointless. God will use it for us and in us to accomplish his ends. And he says, we can know this. He says, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing, knowing that these sufferings produce endurance. The word know here, knowing, is the Greek word eida, oida, and it refers to the idea of knowledge based upon facts and revelation. Uh, there's another Greek word, gnosis, forms of the word gnosis, which refers among other things, to a knowledge that grows out of experience, a knowledge that grows out of relationship. And that's a knowledge and a legitimate sort of knowledge, but the word used here is a factual knowledge, a revelatory knowledge. What it means is that God, we can know as we go into suffering, based on what God has told us about it, not because we're experiencing uh, some lesson in life, but God has promised us that he is going to use this in a certain fashion. We can know on the basis of God who does not lie that he is working in the circumstances. No matter what I may be feeling in the midst of a pressing down opportunity, God promises me he is using that pressing down suffering to produce a good end. Certainly, later on in the book of Romans, in the 8th chapter, we'll encounter a very similar idea where he says we can know that all things work together for good, for the good of those who are his children. And we'll examine more fully that promise in Romans 8, 28. Well, how does God work in the pressing down time? What is he doing in the midst of it in terms of the fruit of that sort of time? And then after ta answering that, then we'll say, well, what's God doing in us in the midst of those pressing down times. But first things first, how is God using these pressing down times? Well, he tells us in verses three and four, he is doing three things, producing three fruits in the midst of suffering, pressing down, thlipsis sorts of experiences. Number one, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance. This word endurance translates a Greek word, which means the ability to keep moving forward 
even while remaining under a particular set of circumstances. Endurance is the ability to keep on keeping on, uh, putting one step ahead of the other, in front of the other, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Generally, what difficult circumstances seek to do and often accomplish in people's lives is it neutralizes them. It stalls them out. It locks them in and paralyzes them in a way in the circumstance itself. And God says, no, for my children, my redeemed, justified ones, I will be working in them to help them, even in these permitted suffering times, to keep moving forward, one foot in front of the other, despite the continuation of the suffering they will not stall out. They will not paralyze. They will keep moving forward. Suffering will not obstruct us and, in fact, often helps us in maturing as a disciple and serving the purposes of God. Paul in Philippians chapter 1 talked about the suffering of being uh, in, chained in jail between the praetorian guard and how God was using that to actually advance the gospel. God keeps us moving, keeps ministry fruit producing, even in the midst of these sufferings. Now, how do we know that? Because we can see it all? No, not necessarily. But God says that's what he's doing, and it comes down, can you believe him? Can you trust him just like you trusted him about the message of the gospel? Can you trust him about this message to you that he will keep you moving and he will be building endurance in you through the circumstance that he's permitting? The second fruit that he identifies in this passage is that one of the outcomes of that endurance, which is being built into our life, is it will produce character in us. At least the word character is the word used in the English Standard Version here. The Greek word is dokimen, and dokimen refers to a situation where a virtue is evidenced in one's life because it's been tested and shown and demonstrated. How does that relate here? Well, character is something God builds in our life. He takes suffering situations where the press is pushing down on us. And as we have a continuing endurance in the face of it, it will at the same time be producing in us a deep and tested character, a holy discipleship. Let me put it in that terminology. The circumstance, difficult as it may be, actually is fostering, deepening discipleship, growth, maturity as a believer. We demonstrate the virtue tested and approved. God says, I'm doing that in you too. And you say, well, I don't feel much more mature, Lord. And God says, well, I don't care how you feel. The fact is you are more mature. I am using the circumstance. And as you continue to trust me and endure in the face of it, I'm doing it to build you, to deepen you, to give you ever more fully formed character, virtue, reflection of the fruit of the Spirit, the maturity that I want to see in you, in Christ. He uses suffering to mold our character. And we can always know that's the case. Remember I said earlier, the believer is never battered without benefits? Well, one of the benefits is that God molds our character through it. 
there can be benefits of going through the hard times. Finally, he says, as he is doing this, as we are enduring in the face of these pressing down, suffering times, as he is using our endurance in it to produce and build and mold a godly character within us, he is also taking that and building our ability to hope. He is deepening our ability to hope. Now, by the way, as he says here, it produces hope and a hope that does not disappoint us. He's not talking here about the hope of the gospel, which we're already resting in, uh, the trust of our future and a hope and an inheritance in heaven and all of that. Uh, although that is certainly a hope. But that hope is not the focus here. The hope I believe that he's talking about here is the confidence that we will continue to discover God's grace in the midst of what we're currently in and in the midst of anything else that may come our way. We have a hope, a growing hope that emerges out of our experience in the midst of a trial that enables us to continue to trust God. And God says this is a hope that will not disappoint. It is a hope that will not put us to shame. It will never be an embarrassment to us. Now, what is he saying there? He is saying that we will discover a deepening ability to trust God and an ability to trust that in the effect of trusting him, we will never be ashamed that we did it. We will never be embarrassed that we did it. Now, why would we ever be embarrassed if we were trusting in God in the midst of a difficult time? Because if we are in the midst of a difficult time and we don't find his strength in the midst of it, if we don't find it and we fall flat on our face, uh, that's an embarrassing outcome. And God says, listen, as you trust me, as you place your hope in my promise to be there for you and work with you and work through the circumstance, there will never be a time where you will be ashamed of the fact that you trusted me, that you rested in me. You will never be put to shame. Satan tries to convince you that you don't deserve God's help that God will be off somewhere else in the universe, not available to you as you face difficult times. And you need, on the basis of the word of God, to say, no, no, God promised something very different. He promised that he will never leave me nor forsake me. He promised me that even if everybody else abandons me, as in 2 Timothy chapter 4, you will stand by me in the midst of the circumstance, of the pressure, of the suffering. No, no, I'm going to hope in my God in his promised help, deliverance, and use of any circumstance he permits to happen in my life. He will never stop working, providing, and using these difficult circumstances. <laughs> what a wonderful outcome. Enduring, endurance, character building, deepening hope and rest, and confidence in God's promises and grace. A wonderful fruit. And none of that fruit would be as likely to happen apart from the suffering. So when we say, God, don't let suffering in my life, essentially we're saying, God, make it so I can't really grow. No wonder God doesn't answer that sort of prayer. God's involved in helping us to grow. Well, a final point. What is God doing in the midst of all of this? Well, it tells us he's poured his love in our hearts when we responded to the gospel. God's love has been poured into our hearts. And he's also given us the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Two things which change everything. The love of God, agape is the Greek word here, has been poured into our hearts. We discover some of that in Galatians 5 description of the fruit of the Spirit, which begins by saying the fruit of the Spirit is love, agape. But more than that, in this passage, God is saying to us, I'm pouring my love into you. My love is being expressed toward you, not only poured into you. I will never stop loving you as my child. Satan tries to make us fear that God won't help us in our time of need. And God says, no, no, I love you. My love compels me to help you. Do you trust his love? You trusted his love in the terms of the gospel. That when he sent his son into this world, you trusted that meant he loved you enough to save you. Do you believe he loves you enough to help you in the midst of the circumstances of life? That he loves you enough to take any such circumstances and produce a good outcome from them? God's love has been poured into our hearts. We are the beneficiaries of the continuing expression of God's love. That makes all the difference. Finally, he says, the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. When we were redeemed, when we were justified, adopted as his children, made new creations, we were also indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. That indwelling Holy Spirit, taking up residence in our life, becomes the source of enablement to face difficult times differently. He has already been given to us, because we've received the Holy Spirit already prior to the suffering, we can expect to find his grace sufficient in the midst of the suffering. We have been justified and indwelt. Now we will be empowered in the face of what comes our way. So God is not only using the difficult suffering times, but he is working to empower us in the facing of those difficult times. <laughs> You see, having credited righteousness, being declared right in the sight of God, redeemed, justified, changes everything. And it certainly allows us to face the inescapable and inevitable suffering times in this life differently. I pray these teachings about suffering found in verses 3 to 5 of Romans chapter 5 will prove revolutionary if you've been struggling in the midst of hard times. No, he is there, he is using them, and he is working in you, and he is empowering you. Can you rest in him? Well, join me the next time as we continue further into the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. God bless.